0: I'd you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be looking at three verses together today. And uh, we look forward to doing that with you. In the last several weeks, uh, we have studied how the author of Hebrews uh, comments on the faithless wilderness generation. He has a lot to say about them. He quotes Psalm 95 originally that describes them, and then he adds comments to them, to that himself. His main point about that wilderness generation of the Israelites is that they failed to enter the promised land, the land of God's rest, because of unbelief. They were full of unbelief, riddled with unbelief. Uh, Instead of trusting God and putting their faith and trust in Him, they saw giants, and they could not believe that God could give them the land. With this Old Testament analogy, though, the author is not just concerned to give a history lesson. He wants to call his readers to certain perspectives in responding to the story. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, he gives them two ways that they must respond. And I pointed these out last week. In verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 4, he says, therefore, and you skip a few words, and then he says, therefore, let us fear. Okay. So the first way he challenges them to respond to the story of Israel and their disobedience and their failure to enter the land of God's rest was that they should fear that they would miss out on a future day of God's rest as well. So in Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 10, the author uh, eventually relates the rest of the promised land to God's final rest in heaven. And so he tells his readers, you also should fear failure to... Not enter that rest. The stakes are eternally high. We're talking about heaven here. But then, secondly, in verse 11, he gives a response in his parallel. Remember, verse 1, therefore let us fear. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. To come to this place in the text, uh, the author tells his readers, remember, it's not just about Israel in the Old Testament, it's about them, his readers. That they should, and this is how I would translate this uh, strive, they should make every effort. Make every effort to enter God's rest. That is, they should be eager, zealous, and diligent to make effort for something. Okay? Now, I think most of us in our world today strive for something, okay? There are things, there are objects, there are pursuits, there are goals and dreams that motivate us, and so we fix it out in the future, and so then we make diligent effort to get there and not be ashamed. We do this with things in the future, future occupation, a future occupation, so we go through all the schooling. We pay for all the schooling, we do all the training, we do all the mentoring, we're under, we're under it all, and, but what we keep in mind is that future occupation that one day we will have, or we have the wedding day, right? Ladies, uh, not men, uh, the wedding day, right? And we line up all these things, we get all of this stuff set, we do all of this diligent effort to get ready for the day. Weddings, perhaps, didn't hit some of the men in the room. How about retirement? Okay, that's all you have to look forward to, men. Retirement, no, just, (laughs) how about retirement, right? I have talked to so many different men and women who are looking forward to the day where they can retire, where they go home. And so they they plan out their life. They set out goals and strategies. They check out all of, they check their bank account, right, all over and over again. They check their assets, everything they've got, and then they finally, one day, they're just gonna, and they dream of that day, I'm just gonna pull the trigger, and retire. Many of us strive for something, but here, what the author of Hebrews says that we are to strive for, what we are to make every effort toward, is entering God's rest. God's final rest in heaven. Honestly, I think few of us have that as a target that motivates us and inspires us and challenges us to arrange our life and set our goals for that day when we enter God's final rest in heaven. And so that's what this passage is about. This, this imperative is very demanding. It implores us to do everything that we can to remain faithful. To remain in the faith until we see Christ. It's interesting to me, though, that most of this passage, verses 12 and 13, are an explanation. An explanation. The author explains why. Why should his readers put so much effort toward pleasing God and entering His final rest. You know, explaining why we should do something is important from time to time, especially if the stakes or the demands are very high. You should explain why. Let's imagine for a moment uh, that in the service I, I called the church to respond in a weird way. At the end of the service, I immediately or I challenge you to immediately begin running to the beachfront in Virginia Beach. I explained that this was very important and that you needed to give every effort within you to get there. I then prayed and said, go. Go now. How would you respond to that? Well, you might have a few questions for the preacher, right? <laughs> so it's not my normal practice to talk to the preacher after the service, but I'll go down there and I, your first question would be this Brent, are you feeling okay? Like, are you like doing, has this been like an especially bad month for you? Need a sabbatical or something? To get beyond that, it, you would probably ask, why? Why should I try that? Why should I run? To the beachfront and you would be looking for some sort of explanation about why you had to go to the beachfront immediately and why you had to run like why can't i like take my car (laughs) if i've got to go within this passage the author of hebrews tells us why we must give every effort to enter god's final rest in heaven he gives us two reasons in particular in verses 12 and 13. One in verse 12, one in verse 13, and we'll go quickly through this. Let's look at the first reason together. First, you should make every effort to enter God's final rest because God's Word will accurately discern your true heart condition. Look at verse 12. It starts out with the word for. These are grounds. These are, this is a reason Why? You should strive. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As we look closely at verse 12, we can learn a few things about God and His Word. One of the things I want to do before we we look very clearly at the text is just to answer the question, what is the word of God that the author of Hebrews is talking about here? And the way I'd answer that is to say that this phrase, uh, it's four words in the original, halagas theu. those four words are only used by the author of Hebrews in one other place. So turn to Hebrews 13 and verse 7, you'll see the same words there. Hebrews 13 and verse 7, what does he mean by the word of God? For the word of God is living. Hebrews 13, verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We come to this passage here, he says that the leaders of their church spoke the word of God to them. It appears that these leaders then worked with an existing body of written material that they had. The written revelation of God, perhaps the Old Testament Scripture, maybe a few books of the New Testament, I would say that what he means by the Word of God in this passage is Scripture. The leaders used Scripture with them. We go back to Hebrews uh, chapter 4 and verse 12. So in Hebrews 4.12, the primary emphasis that the author is making is how Scripture warns us and diagnoses our sin. That's interesting to me. Many of you have known this verse for quite a while, for the word of God is, you know, and you've got it memorized in whatever translation you memorize it in. Okay? But sometimes we don't stop to think about it. It's interesting how he describes the word of God, the scriptures here. He, he personifies it. So, in other words, he's got the scriptures doing something. Um the, God's word does what God wants. Since we talk about the words of God, you can be talking about God, God's communication to mankind that will never fail on its purposes. Being personified here reminds me of a text in Paul's writings where it says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word. The Word does it. It acts because it comes from the living God. So how is it described here? First verse 12, uh, we see what the Word of God is. It is living and powerful. First, the word living. Living uh, is the very first word in the original, and it is not a normal word used to describe any sort of writing, any sort of letter. You don't normally put that adjective in front of it. However, in Hebrews 3.12, he put that adjective in front of God. So when you talk about a living God who is alive and who's alert and responding to the things around him, you can say that his word is living too. His word is is living. It is not dead. And then he adds a little bit to that. And I think he tells us how it is living. The author adds that the word is active. This means that it is, a, it is capable to accomplish things. I can't do any better than the description that is given by R. Kent Hughes, the former pastor of uh, Campus Church in Wheaton, He said this, he said, God's Word vibrates with active, effectual power as it rushes to fulfill the purpose for which it was spoken by God. Perhaps I can do a little bit better. Isaiah 55 says, As rain and snow come down from heaven to water the earth, and to produce seed and grain so God's Word comes down from heaven and accomplishes its purposes. The Word is living and active, but then he continues in verse 12 and he tells us more about what it is by showing what it does. So I take the next three descriptions. In this verse, verse 12, there are five descriptions of the Word. It is living and active. And the next three talk about what it does. So look in your Bible after that first phrase. Sharper, that's the third description, than any two-edged sword. Piercing, that's number four, to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And five, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we we walk through this uh, quickly as well. First, he starts out in what it does by saying that it is sharp and cutting, and that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. I think that the reference here might be to a, there's some debate, but I think maybe it's a reference to a surgeon's scalpel, or knife. Okay? So as he's describing the Word of God and what it does, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It, it, it is like a scalpel's knife that then he says, consequently, goes out from God and cuts, or pierces that's that fourth description piercing it cuts or it pierces it penetrates to the division of some things right the soul and spirit don't you wish you had a little bit more about soul and spirit here if the author is not giving a philosophical talk about the different parts of humanity human beings I think that he's just referencing, he's using soul and spirit to talk about the immaterial parts of our being. What is within us but that is not material. Our spirit and our soul. The word can cut, it cuts down into there. And then uh, he describes with another set of two, uh, it cuts down to where joints and marrow are distinguished. Again, I think he's just giving examples of the physical parts of us. So you have The immaterial parts of us, soul, spirit, you have the material parts, joints and marrow. And what's interesting to me here is this choice of two physical parts. I mean, I could have chosen any kind of parts of the human body, but he doesn't choose the skin. He doesn't choose muscle. He chooses things that have to do with bone. Bone. Joints and marrow. I think you're showing how the Word of God scrutinizes the depths it goes. It burrows down inside of us. Together, these two parts, soul, spirit, joint, tomorrow. summarize our entire human existence, both material and immaterial. And once the Word then, see what he's doing with the Word? He's personifying. Okay, the Word is not just a book, right? But the Word has ability. It is something, and it does something. And what it does is it, it, it penetrates deep down inside, and then once it's there, the Word does more. Once it's there, the Word discerns. You see, that? that's the fifth description, discern, discerning the thoughts and intentions, intentions of the heart. It discerns, or it distinguishes, or it judges between our thoughts themselves and our complete way of thinking, the intents of our heart. So uh, the word here is personified. It goes down into our heart like God himself can and confronts our values, our imaginations, and our attentions. I think it'd be good. This is what verse 12 says, but I think one of the questions we always ask with exegesis is why did the author say this? Why is this here? And that's important too. I think we know what it says, but why is this here? Why all this information about the word? Why does he go off you know, in this verse in five descriptions of the word? And I think it's because... He's giving you a reason to strive to put every effort within your soul and being to enter God's rest. And the reason is God's word diagnoses your heart. And entering into God's rest is a matter of the heart. Okay, since God's rest is a matter of entering, uh, is is a matter of the heart, then, and if His Word can really, I mean, really evaluate what's going on inside, then I better strive, I better put every effort. Men and women, the the Word of God, both the Old and New Testaments, uh, they are not, uh, it is not a dead book. It is living and active, even in our present situation. The word is not only completely accurate in what it says. It is that. And it is God-breathed. It is that as well. But its words lay bare those who are obedient and those who are disobedient. It pierces. It discerns. Every part of us, our physical, spiritual, and cognitive part, all of us, No person hides from the close, internal, penetrating scrutiny of God's Word. John Piper said it this way. He said, God's Word rips the pleasant mask off the ugliness of our sin and exposes us. You wonder why we go phrase by phrase, verse by verse through this book. It is accurate, it is inspired, but it also does a spiritual work. It diagnoses our heart. But not only does the Word of God diagnose our internal conditions, so too does the surveillance of God. Look with me in verse 13, and this is the second reason. You should make every effort to enter God's rest because God's eyes fully see your every action. Look at verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In verse 13, the author switches the subject from the word of God to the the eyes of God, or perhaps to God himself. I think both ways are a way of drawing attention to what God does with his words and with his eyes. And so the way the author describes this verse 13 is he starts off by saying all creatures are naked and exposed before him. And he uses a phrase which is used in certain settings in the first century. He says, naked and exposed. Okay, So when this word, these words are put together and used in the first century, there are really two different ways they can be used, and so we don't know exactly which metaphor picture the author of Hebrews has in mind. Sometimes the word naked, words naked and exposed are used of a wrestler who takes his opponent by the throat, pulls him in so that they are face-to-face, naked and exposed. Okay, You're uncomfortable, right, with how close this is. Other times the phrase is used in a context of criminal trials in secular Greek writing. And so that might be the case here. In, in that case, a sharp dagger would be bound to, uh, in a few cases, the neck, the neck of an accused person with the point just below his chin, so that he could not throw his head back or to the side to refuse to look at the court official. If this is the imagery, then the creature is not allowed to turn or can't turn his face away from God. Men and women, I think the point here is that God clearly scrutinizes all human beings. There's nothing, there's nothing that he cannot see. Do you know that? Not only actions, but thoughts. He knows it all. I've told a story one time before of a preacher. I, I love this story. A preacher was telling, a, I gave an illustration of some boys who were stealing apples in an orchard. As they were in the act and, and, and looking around, it just so happened that the great astronomer, astronomer Samuel Mitchell was observing the sun as it was descending. Okay, so he's looking through a telescope, and he's seven miles away. So uh, the sun is descending, gets to the crest of the hill, and, and as uh, the astronomer is wrapping up his work, he notices two boys in an orchard stealing apples. One was stealing the apples. The other one was making sure no one saw, no one could see what was going on. I thought, you know, that's a great example of the scrutiny of God. He sees everything. His vision is penetrating. All things are naked and laid bare before his eyes because God has maker's knowledge of us. His maker's knowledge of us. So those of you who do woodwork, you do crafts, when you put together a piece and you, and you, you, you know all the fine parts, you know how it all weaves together, you put it all together, no one knows it better than you. No one knows you better than your maker. He knows every part of you from the inside out. He sees everything that you do. Several years ago now, I remember uh, playing a game of hide-and-go-seek with my son Levi. I don't normally mention names, but he was three at the time, so I don't think he'll mind. When you play hide-and-go-seek with a three-year-old, it's quite a fun experience, right? Uh, I remember when he would hide, it kind of turn for him to hide. I'd hide, you know, find some good spot, and he'd look for me for an hour or so, or whatever. And, uh, sorry, Levi, but um, um, when he would hide, uh, his whole body would be expo- exposed, but he would just close his eyes. Stand in the middle of the room. it has got older, stand in the corner. He thought it was fine. It was cute for a three-year-old, but I think many of us respond spiritually like this. We think we can hide from God. Yet we're just as uncovered. God not only sees those moments when we sneak away in private or those moments when we engage in things with our friends that we hope no one else ever finds out about. No authority. No parent. He also scrutinizes the justifications of our heart when we reason for our own way instead of following God's way and plan for our our lives. We say things like this under our breath. I can handle this. It won't be too tempting of a situation. Or I can do this It's not that bad. Not too many people will be affected. Or perhaps it just affects me. God sees through that. And one day soon, we will all give an account to the One who knows all and sees all. And so may God help us to strive forward Make diligent effort toward a goal. The goal: entering God's rest one day in heaven. Because God's word will discern our hearts. His eyes will see what we do and read our motives. And in the end, that's the judge to which we give an account. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider the author of Hebrews, these warnings are so strong. This challenge is so demanding. I don't believe I've even captured it clearly, or maybe fully, I should say. Father, you, you are imploring us to do, to make effort in every area. So that, we can be, so that we can remain faithful and committed to our confession of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior of men. Lord, I would pray for my brothers and sisters here today who know Christ. I pray that this would be their heart, that they would have a desire to make an impact with their life for Christ. That more so than any goal a job, a day, the lack of job, more so than any of those goals, they would be scheming and strategizing and plotting and planning and acting and preparing for that day when they enter God's rest, your rest in heaven. If, if many of us had that as our predominant pursuit in life, if we gave diligent effort toward that, we would impact others for the cause of Jesus Christ. Lord, I'd also pray for any person here today who does not know Jesus as Savior. They want to be accepted by you. They want to enter your rest one day in heaven, but they don't know how. I pray, Lord, that they would today repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and place their faith... Lord, help them to believe today, perhaps in this moment, in silent prayer, they're at their seed. Lord, help them through the Spirit. Help them to believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross and that He rose again by Your power to defeat death and sin. Help them see, Father, that Jesus did this as the Son of God so that they could be entirely released from the guilt and the punishment of their sin. Lord, I pray for those who don't know Christ here today that they would repent and believe in Jesus as the only way to be saved. Lord, we pray that you would save them and that your name would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.